You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and Yahweh is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of Yahweh? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning Yahweh will show who is his and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses he will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah and all his company, put fire in them, and put incense on them before Yahweh tomorrow. And the man whom Yahweh chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of Yahweh, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore it is against Yahweh that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. And they said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards, Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And Moses was very angry and said to Yahweh, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed one of them. And Moses said to Korah, Be present, you and all your company, before Yahweh, you and they, and Aaron, tomorrow, and let every one of you take his censer and put incense in it. And every one of you, bring Yahweh his censer, 250 censers, you also, and Aaron, each his censer. So every man took his censer and put fire in them, and laid incense on them, and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the congregation. And Yahweh spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, 
Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that Yahweh has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then Yahweh has not sent me. But if Yahweh creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised Yahweh. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from Yahweh and consumed the two hundred and fifty men offering the incense. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, to take up the censers out of the blaze, then scatter the fire far and wide, for they have become holy. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar, for they offered them before Yahweh, and they became holy. Thus they shall be a sign to the people of Israel. So Eleazar the priest took the bronze censers, which those who were burned had offered, and they were hammered out as a covering for the altar, to be a reminder to the people of Israel, so that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before Yahweh, lest he become like Korah and his company, as Yahweh said to him through Moses. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of Yahweh. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of Yahweh appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces, and Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it from off the altar, and lay incense on it, and carry it quickly to the congregation, and make atonement for them, for wrath has gone out from Yahweh, the plague has begun. So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly, and behold, the plague had already begun among the people. 
And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700, besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 632 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, June 7th, 2023, and that was a reading of number 16, followed shortly thereafter by the first verse of Sincerely Ichabod by Project 86. For any of you who enjoy something a little harder in the way of Christian music, Project 86 might be worth a listen. You might check it out. Take a look. I used to listen to them back in the day. And every now and then, I still listen. I'll turn it on when I am just in a very intense mood and I'm trying to process those emotions. Because you know what? It's okay to have emotions. Emotions are not something to repent of. But here's the kicker. Here is the exception clause. Here's the fine print. You should not be led by your emotions. Have your emotions. Be emotional. Be an emotional being. Absolutely. But your emotions should not control you. And they don't tell you what is true. And they don't tell you what is good. If you are led by your emotions, you can very easily be manipulated. And that's reason numero uno for our Spanish friends. Reason numero uno to feel your emotions, but... Put them in the back seat more often than not. Feel them. Take them with you wherever you go. But let God's word be your standard for what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. And then feel accordingly. Ask the good Lord above to recalibrate your heart or to give you a new heart. If this one is totally non-functional, and you need a new one, guess what? God's in the business of making new hearts and putting in hearts of flesh where there are otherwise hearts of stone that don't function. They don't work like they're supposed to. We don't want to be hard-hearted. You might want to be tough, especially if you're a man. That's good, but you don't want to be hard-hearted. You don't want to be stiff-necked. You don't want to be stubborn 
What you want is to be steadfast, to be stalwart, to be bold. Those are good things when you're about the right things, when you're about truth and goodness. But you have to go to God to find out what is true and what is good. He knows. We don't always know. And we definitely, definitely don't want to just subcontract that job of figuring out what is true and good and beautiful to other people. The spirit of the age in all times throughout recorded human history is an unreliable guide. The spirit of the age is not what you should defer to because here is another piece of fine print on that contract, on that social contract. The spirit of the age changes its mind, sometimes dramatically, sometimes without any warning for those who aren't paying attention. And sometimes the people who are still stuck on the old rule set, they find that the rules have changed just to destroy them or their type. And all of a sudden, they find that they are not in the good graces of the majority, or they're not in what they formerly perceived to be, I should say, more to the point, the good graces of the majority. Don't go in with the majority. Sometimes majority opinion is okay, right? Sometimes you can say, ah, well, the majority of people think this thing, and that's okay. But you have to have a reliable, universal, objective, God-given standard to refer to upstream of here's what the majority of people think. Maybe take note of what the majority of people think. But if you're in the context of number 16, just imagine. Imagine you are in the congregation. You're in the assembly of Israel. And you're watching everything unfold with Korah and Kohath and Dathan. You're here. And you're watching these guys enlist 250 chiefs of the congregation chosen from the assembly, well-known men. There's a lot of politicking happening in this first paragraph of number 16. You're watching all of this take place. And on the other side of the equation, you're seeing Moses and Aaron. And you're listening to a lot of very influential voices that have gone in together to oppose Moses and Aaron to their faces. And you're trying to figure out, who do I believe? And you're looking at Moses and Aaron, and you're saying, well, Moses and Aaron aren't perfect either. They're not perfect. Yeah, you know what? That that bothers me too. That bit about Moses and Aaron setting themselves up to tell everybody what to do all the time. Who does Moses think that he is, acting like he's a prince of this people? We didn't elect him. That's not how this works. These men over here, there's a lot more of them. Surely they know. These are well-known men. They wouldn't go in with folly for no reason, for no good purpose. Surely they know. But if you did that, if you were to do that in the context of Numbers 16, you would be dead wrong. And I mean that potentially, literally, you might be dead wrong. If you read and believe number 16, we see at the tail end that this plague that goes out takes 14,700 lives. And this is a plague from God. This is punishment from God on the people of Israel. And maybe you wouldn't be one of those 14,700, but maybe you would know somebody. 
Maybe you would be acquainted. Maybe you would be close to somebody who was one of those nearly 15,000. And actually, if you add the tally of these notable men, the 250, you add that to the 14,700, you get really, really close to 15,000 dying in this rebellion. And who is it that puts them to death? It's not Moses and Aaron. It's God himself who puts this 15,000 to death. And would you want to take a chance? Would you want to side with the many who have an appearance of strength, humanly speaking? Or would it be better for you to side with God, who has a very clearly stated purpose? He's been very transparent. He's been very open about what he is intending to do with this people. He's given his commands. He's given his provision. He's given his protection. He has delivered his people. He's liberated his people from 400 years of hard bondage. Depending on how long you think a generation is, that's potentially 20 generations of hard bondage in Egypt. You have God having done all of this, and then you have these guys who want to only talk about what their problems are with Moses and Aaron. And this is something of a theme you may be noticing if you've been listening to this podcast as we go through the last, oh, I don't know, 14 or so, 15 or so episodes of this podcast since we got into the book of Numbers. You notice that this is something of a theme that you really can't just trust the majority or the appearance of a majority opinion. You can't trust that, and it shouldn't be your guide. Now, maybe a majority opinion is consequential, maybe it's meaningful, but it's not reliable. And this can be true with polling today as well. If you look at stats, and you're watching the news, and you're reading reports, let's say you open up the Wall Street Journal, or you turn on, God forbid, CNN, and you start seeing all these stats A new poll indicates that the majority of Americans believe such and such or support this or that, or such and such a percentage of Republicans are for such and such, and such and such a percentage of Democrats are for this other thing. What should your response be? Should your response be to say, well, I guess there's no use being for the thing that I believed was true and right and good and beautiful from reading God's word, from studying it diligently. I guess there's no use being for that thing because it would appear I'm outnumbered and what's the point? Moses and Aaron in Numbers 16 would beg to differ from my way of reading it. The 12 spies coming back from Canaan, which we also read here very recently, would beg to differ. The two who come back with a good report, which is to say, yes, there are giants in the land, but it's irrelevant because our God is stronger than they are. Our God is able to deliver this land into our hands just as he's promised to. And oh, by the way, he has promised to. That story also should caution us as to the limited reliability of majority opinion. It's noteworthy. The biblical text tells us, right? It's noteworthy. By all means, write it down. (laughs) Pay attention. Remember it. Do take note. But it is not reliable. It's not reliable in the context of these passages. And why is that? Because God is the one who will see his purposes accomplished. He's the one who is going 
to win out and he is going to succeed at what he has said he's going to do at the end of the day. So when Jesus says in the Gospels that wide is the path that leads to destruction and many go down that wide path, and when Jesus says in the Gospels that narrow is the path that leads to salvation, eternal life, the blessings of fellowship with God, the blessings that come with faith in the Most High God, obedience to the Most High God. When Jesus says that narrow is the way and few there are that find it, that's our cue to not be deceived, not be tricked, not be manipulated easily by what you might call the Jones effect. The problem for many of us in our day is that for the past century or so, there's a lot that happened about a century or so ago. There's plenty that happened before, but let's just, for the sake of making this concise, confine ourselves to this one particular point. About a century ago, a guy by the name of Edward Bernays wrote a book called Propaganda. He was the double first nephew of Sigmund Freud. He's actually the reason why we even know and recognize the name of Sigmund Freud, because he got a copy of Uncle Sigmund's book and read it and then thought, hmm, this should really be applied to mass psychology. And the next thing you knew, what was born of that wedding of Freud's theories with the penchant on Edward Bernays's part for a scaled-up version, what resulted was public relations and advertising as we know it today. The soft sell. You create an impression in somebody's mind. You don't directly claim, if you can at all avoid it, you don't directly claim things that then somebody is going to come back and tell you or tell a judge you lied about. You put out advertising. You put out TV commercials and magazine ads and little sidebar banners on web pages associating the product you want to sell, the idea you want to sell, the political candidate you want to sell, the political policy position you want to sell. Associate all those things with very primal desires, very fundamental, foundational human needs. And imply that if you buy this product, if you sign up for this service, if you vote for this political candidate, if you support this political cause, you will have all of these other needs met and satisfied, and then you'll be content. And it works just the opposite. When you want to run an attack on your opponents or your rival's product or service or your rival politician's campaign or the policy positions that you disfavor. Create negative association by putting things together that will put a bad taste in people's minds about what you want them to reject. And then their subconscious, as Freud would call it, their subconscious, the level of thinking and reasoning that is actually below the surface, it's just ever so slightly below our normal awareness. We have to really look for it and pay attention and search our hearts and be what the Puritans would have called students of our own hearts to find it. That level of our thinking and reasoning is baited. And before you know it, the hook is in. And before you know it, we're being reeled in by whoever it is that was fishing for us. And next thing you know, it's at their discretion whether they bop us over the head and throw us in the cooler, put us on ice, 
or put us back in the water. Either way, we've got a hole in our mouth from the hook. And so also, these guys who staged the rebellion in Numbers 16, they get a hook in their mouth. And what is the bait? The bait is more authority for them, more say-so for them, more credit for them. And what's the claim? There's this really easy to miss if you're not paying attention for it, if you're not watching for it. There's this really easy claim to just pass over in the midst of all the drama. What these guys say is that all of this people is holy. All the congregation are holy, every one of them. And Yahweh is among them. So what are they not presenting? They're not presenting a counter claim that is the denial or the rejection of Yahweh having authority over the people of Israel per se, not directly. What they're doing is they're flattering the congregation. They're saying, you're all good people. You're all inherently good. Moses and Aaron have been lying to you. They're taking advantage of you. You're all holy. And listen to us. Because if you've already been listening so far, if you've started listening to us, well, just keep on listening to us and we will deliver you from Moses and Aaron. And here's more fine print. Moses and Aaron are who God chose to lead this people. And so Korah and company, they're not delivering the people of Israel from bondage. They are delivering the people of Israel, the leaders of the people of Israel in particular, these 250 chiefs of the congregation, they're delivering them over to death and separation from God. This is rebellion. And a brief thought for you, lest you think that this is cruel and heartless and harsh and excessive on God's part, consider 1 Samuel 15 verses 22 through 24. And Samuel said, As Yahweh has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of Yahweh, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, He has also rejected you from being king. And then verse 24, here's the response from King Saul, who is being pronounced judgment on by Samuel. Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of Yahweh and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, full stop, ladies and gentlemen, full stop. What does Saul admit was the reason why he disobeyed God and he disobeyed Samuel, who was speaking on behalf of God and telling Saul the word of the Lord? What does Saul admit was his reason for disobeying God, for not believing God, for not serving God faithfully? Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I obeyed their voice. And what is the fly in the ointment with our political processes, with our institutions and organizations and corporations of every type and size in this country, what is again and again our error that we obey the voice of the people? 
Vox Populi. We get it in our heads that democracy is this sacred thing. And yes, there can be certain things, certain institutions, certain decisions, certain processes where it's beneficial, where it's wise to get counsel, to get input, to conduct a poll, to take a vote. Don't get me wrong, but pure democracy is not good. It's not reliable. It is not in the biblical account in the Old Testament, and it's not what's prescribed for us in the New Testament either. And, oh, by the way, fun fact, I've read a fair amount of Greek history, ancient Greek history, over the past couple of years. It's not even among the Greeks. The Greek story, the Greek legacy would teach us that pure democracy does not work. The founding fathers of the United States of America knew that pure democracy does not work. The Democrat Party in our day doesn't want you to know that. They don't even know that, but they definitely don't want you hearing that because it would upset all their plans. and They are very similar to Korah. When they get religious, they make the exact same kind of claims that Korah was making in number 16. They do the exact same thing that Saul did that cost him the kingdom. Consider with me, if you will, a quote from Wyatt Earp I was just exposed to. Fast is fine, but accuracy is final. Fast is fine, but accuracy is final. So if somebody tells you, hey, you need to have a greater sense of urgency, uh, you just take too long. You take too long to do things. You take too long to say things. There's another quote that's related to this. Slow is smooth, smooth is fast. But this quote by Wyatt Earp is another good addition. Fast is fine, right? It's good to be fast. Great. But did you hit your target? Right? And here he's talking about gunslinging, gunfighting. Accuracy is final. It's good to be fast. If you're fast and you miss, what good is that? Not much. Nobody's going to remember how much faster you were than the other guy if you miss and he hits and you're dead. That's an important thing to note and to apply in every area of life, I would say. But here, I'm not referring to this quote primarily, first and foremost, from the standpoint of gunslinging. Actually, what I have in view is with our words, with what we say, with how we think, how we arrive at conclusions. This is a big reason why this is a long-form podcast, and I don't just do a whole bunch of tiny little 10 minutes here, 12 minutes there type episodes. I do long-form podcast episodes because I want people to learn and rediscover in this country. I want my countrymen, and I at least want the church, I at least want my family and my friends to rediscover how to think longer and harder about things. Because I know that so many of us are being manipulated because we're not actually being encouraged to think in most cases. When things are being sold to us, we're not being persuaded, we're being manipulated. So it's good to come to decisions quickly. Sometimes you can't wait. How is a first responder, an emergency responder, supposed to just take all day to make a decision when life and death hangs in the balance. No, no. But then on the other hand, on the other hand, we say that 
And when they take their time is in the prep. That's when they take their time, in the training, in drilling, in practice, in thinking through scenarios before they're in those scenarios so that they know exactly what to do. Paying attention to others who have done this work and done it well to see how they did it, even if that requires long, hard study, to contemplate what has been tried, what worked, how do I emulate that? And the speed will come. If you apply the time, if you put in the practice to train, the speed will come. But you actually do need to put the time in. And you can't be impatient. You can't be in too much of a hurry or else you're not going to progress. You're not going to get there. And people who are willing to put in the time will make the decision for whose values went out at the end of the day, whose ideas went out at the end of the day, whose programs are implemented, whose policies are enacted, whose laws are passed, how those laws are enforced, and finally, how those laws are interpreted. But I bring this up in part to segue and to introduce our first current events item for this episode. Harris Rigby over at Not The Bee offers up a report just today. Target is bankrolling a charity that is working to shut down Mount Rushmore as well as supporting other radical equity causes. Now, Target has been in the headlines plenty, and we'll talk more about Target in this episode besides just this story, but consider that Target is a major corporation that gives money to charities like most major corporations. And one of the charities that Target is giving to, according to this reporting, not just by Not The Bee, but also by Fox News, the Target Foundation's webpage has funded the NDN Collective in 2022. The NDN Collective is a South Dakota-based nonprofit with a revenue stream that has reached as high as $50 million plus, according to its 2021 tax filing. NDN operates with a racial equity lens and is, quote, dedicated to building indigenous power through organizing activism, philanthropy, grant-making, and narrative change, end quote. The group calls Mount Rushmore a symbol of white supremacy and considers it their primary goal to have the United States of America give the monument and the national park back. Here's another quote. The organization's campaign land back called for America to give up its public land. Quote, the closure of Mount Rushmore, return of that land and all public lands in the Black Hills, South Dakota is our cornerstone battle, end quote. NDN said, quote, not only does Mount Rushmore sit in the heart of the sacred Black Hills, but it is an international symbol of, wait for it, wait for it, white supremacy and colonization, end quote. Now, there is more quote here in the Not to Be write-up, but my point is, it's fine to have a quick response to Target or to Bud Light. It's fine if you have a quick response. That's fine. To quote Wyatt Earp, that's fine. Accuracy is final. So are our efforts to combat these things that are happening or that have been happening and we're just now finding out about them, are our efforts to combat these things actually landing on target? Metaphorically hitting center mass. 
are we actually going to affect meaningful change? You know, I was listening to a short episode of the lovely Brett Cooper over at the Daily Wire, young gal. She does a lot of uh, responses to reaction videos and TikTok trends and things like that. She does a great job. She does shorter videos, but I think it's fine, right? That's fine. I don't feel called to shorter videos, shorter audio episodes at this point in my life. Ironically, it's less time invested, more return on investment for me to do long-form podcasts. But nevertheless, I was listening to Brett Cooper talk about Chick-fil-A going woke. And I talked about that in a podcast episode here recently. You can go back. I think it was our last episode. Our enemies fly rainbow flags wherever they seek to affect our surrender. I think it was that one. It might have been the previous Babylon B, not the B, and just plain Babylon. Either way, whichever episode it was, listen to all of them if you haven't yet. Whichever episode it was, <laughs> Brett Cooper pointed out, and appropriately so, this stuff's been going on for years. Actually, what seems to have kickstarted it for Chick fil A in particular to start a DEI move within the company was especially 2020 with all the BLM riots. But even back in 2012, when Dan Cathy came out publicly opposed to gay marriage, so-called marriage equality, and there were calls from leftists across America to boycott Chick-fil-A and to introduce legislation in cities banning Chick-fil-A from having restaurants in those vicinities. And what was the response from Chick-fil-A corporate? The response was to say, hey, maybe we should rethink how we're coming across along some of these lines. We don't want to be seen as bigots. And it's not to say that there was a full capitulation, but it is to say that, as Brett Cooper points out, the boycotts from the left about a decade ago hit Chick-fil-A in a big way. And they did get the attention of management. And this is where we need to be careful, again, about what is perceived to be the will of the people. Just because a certain demographic is the most vocal, that doesn't mean they represent the majority. But on the other hand, this is also proof positive that boycotts work. So the target boycott right now may be a situation where the jury is out for a while. But also at the same time, it might be a decade from now that we look back and we see in hindsight that some of these big boycotts of brands like Bud Light and Target right now made a big difference because corporate America was only hearing from the left. They were only feeling pressure from the left. And so they were only responding to catering to the left. And part of the reason for this is because a whole lot of self-seeking, self-promoting, dishonest leaders were afraid for one thing, and also they spotted opportunity, what they perceived to be opportunity to exploit, to advance themselves, to make themselves seem more wise, more practical, more successful than they really would be otherwise. They saw an opportunity and they exploited it because what appeared to be the Jones effect was going to amplify their credibility, their qualifications in this moment of decision. And again, again, I point you back to number 16. 
And the lesson we should learn is just because there were 250 chiefs from among the assembly of Israel, well-known men who were on board with Korah's rebellion, that did not mean that they were in the right. At the end of the day, when the dust settled, they were no more. And God disposing of them was to certify that this was his people, first and foremost. Moses and Aaron were servants, but they were servants with authority from God. And we need to think long and hard about that when we come to moments of decision in our context. Who are we empowering with our money, with our time, with our attention? Who are we caving into, whether a charismatic individual or a very talented, skilled, confident institution or organization, a very vocal minority that claims to be the majority? We need to think long and hard before we empower people that tomorrow or in 10 years, maybe nothing but a memory. Speaking of Target, Candace Hathaway over at The Blaze published a piece just today about how over 200 LGBT groups are demanding that Target restock all Pride merchandise and denounce extremists speaking out against children's apparel and tuck-friendly swimsuits. So the write-up from Candace Hathaway reads as follows. Consumers called for boycotts after it was revealed that Target's Pride collection included LGBT-themed apparel for children. Two weeks ago, Target announced that it would be moving its Pride section from the front of its stores and removing some items from its inventory altogether. In a statement released May 24th, Target stated that, quote, volatile circumstances, end quote, and, quote, threats impacting our team members' sense of safety, end quote, forced it to stop selling, quote, items that have been at the center of the most significant confrontational behavior, end quote. Designers who had their merchandise pulled from Target's shelves criticized the retailer for caving into the backlash. Eric Carnell, a clothing designer who identifies as a transgendered gay man, which is to say Eric Carnell is actually a female, a woman who has clearly undergone the hormone therapy and reassignment surgery business, but is still attracted to men. Eric Carnell told Reuters, Quote, it's a very dangerous precedent to set that if people just get riled up enough about the products that you're selling, you can completely distance yourself from the LGBT community when and if it's convenient, end quote. Quote, if you're going to take a stance and say that you care about the LGBT community, you need to stand by that regardless, end quote. Now, here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. A company like Target or like Bud Light is double-minded in a situation like this where they're trying to walk it back, but they risk angering everybody, everybody on all sides of the issue with half measures, with trying to play both sides. And even the in-between people, right? Even the people who don't really care that much. They just need a place to buy shampoo. They just need a place to buy 
some decent quality towels that are going to look okay hanging on that little handle on their stove, on, on their oven door. And they just need a place to buy some decent school supplies when it's time for their kids to go back to school in the fall. Even those people who are like, I don't really care as long as you've got things in stock at a reasonable price and a good quality. Even those people increasingly are going to say, wait a second. Now this is gross, right? This is gross that you're just saying whatever you think is going to fit the bill. But now you, what is this, right? And the drama, right? The drama alone creates that negative association, which marketing executives, marketing firms, public relations professionals, political strategists for a century since Edward Bernays' landmark work, Propaganda, invented the profession of public relations, invented the whole field of modern advertising. All those folks who have been manipulating all of us with impressions now get something of a taste of their own medicine in the woke age if boycotts from both directions are creating a negative association with a major brand that up until a few years ago was just a place to buy decent quality, better quality goods for maybe just a little bit more money than what you would find them at Walmart for. You know, if you would go to Walmart, you might find the thing, but it was going to be cheaper, right? That was the contention. Or it was going to be not as good looking, not as handsome, not as stylish. But if you go to Target, if you go to Target, well, you're going to get a little better quality and you're going to have to pay a little bit more, but you know, you're going to feel it, right? You're going to feel like you're buying something better quality. And even the store, right? It was better arranged. It was more exciting, right? They were going with a red color scheme instead of a blue color scheme. Blue in color psychology tends to be calming and an appetite suppressant ironically. And red is exciting. It's romantic. It's adventurous. And this Target brand was really strong. Is it going to continue to be really strong? Is it going to be strong moving forward after boycotts from both directions? I say, here's my recommendation to the folks over at Target. If you want your brand to be strong, and to survive, and to endure, you're going to have to pick a side. And you're going to need to know what side you're on. And this is a similar kind of thing as to what is said in the Old Testament. When Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Those that serve the Lord will endure. And those who want to follow after the gods of the Egyptians won't endure. And your brand, if you go down this road any farther. And this applies to all these major corporations that have been caving into what the Black Rocks on Wall Street are telling them they have to adhere to with ESG investments. All of these major corporations had better understand what has just shifted. There's blood in the water and the sharks are hungry. And I'm not talking about the parents who just don't want their kids to be indoctrinated in woke, critical race theory, gender theory. I'm talking the folks who are going to exploit whatever weakness they see in the market. Those are the sharks. Parents, 
like myself who are just like, I want to go and shop where I can do so in a good conscience, but with, with, with a good conscience, I want to go shop where I can do so with a good conscience where I'm not undermining my own convictions and selling out future generations of my children and grandchildren, etc. We're not the sharks, but by golly, we also aren't the ones who started this. We didn't start this fight. The recent boycott is not that we picked a fight with a bully. It's that after so long and so much, a whole lot of American parents have just had it. We are just over it. A whole lot of just flyover country, middle America types have said, you've gone too far. That's enough. No more. And this is kind of like the scene in A Christmas Story. Really, it's kind of like Ralphie finally just having it with being tormented and chased and bullied and harassed. And he's finally just had it. And he lays into the bully and beats the snot out of him. And it's not to say that everything about this Target boycott or everything about the Bud Light boycott is as good as it could possibly be. But it is to say fast is fine, but accuracy is final. And that applies for organizations as big as Target, as big as Anheuser-Busch. That applies to organizations as small as your household and mine. Accuracy is final, ladies and gentlemen. On a related note, Zach Jewell over at the Daily Wire published a piece just today. Elon Musk has one word response to Matt Walsh's trans healthcare investigation. <clears throat> For a little bit of backstory here, you may remember, you may recall, you may have heard, you might not have, that the Daily Wire, in celebration of the one year anniversary of the documentary by Matt Walsh, What is a Woman?, tried to air that on Twitter and then some holdouts at Twitter decided to cause some trouble the day of. And I think it's very probable that a similar thing happened with the announcement of Ron DeSantis's uh, presidential uh, campaign <clears throat> for 2024. It's possible, right? It's not that it has to have been sabotaged, but it's possible. But in any event, we know that it happened with the intended airing of what is a woman on Twitter. But as a follow-on to that, rather than backing off, rather than caving in, rather than tucking tail and running again and again and again, as so many conservatives have been for too long in the United States, what has Matt Walsh been doing? What has the Daily Wire been doing from this observer's standpoint? They've been continuing on doing what they have been doing, but doing even more of it and following up and pressing harder and not giving up ground. So here's the story from Zach Jewell. In an undercover investigation, Walsh and his team found that Plume and Folks, two of the largest transgender healthcare providers in the U.S., appear to be rubber stamping approvals for life-altering sex change operations and allegedly even falsely representing health information about patients so insurance companies will cover the medical expenses. During the investigation, Walsh and his team discovered how easy it is to get approved for sex change surgery 
when one of the host's producers got a thumbs up for an orchiectomy, I think I'm saying that right, a procedure to remove testicles, by the way, that's what that is, after just a 22-minute virtual appointment with Plume, the largest transgender healthcare provider in the U.S. Here was Elon Musk's one-word response. Insane. Insane. Now, you and I shouldn't need Elon Musk to say that this is insane for us to know that it's insane. That's point number one. But nevertheless, nevertheless, we should be glad that there are wealthy, influential, and prominent people who are increasingly having the courage to say, this is wrong. This is not true. It's not good. It's not beautiful. It fails every test of what something should be for us to embrace it. And the only argument that the left has actually is fear. Fear us, condone what we're telling you we're going to do and be about, or we'll destroy you. Period. Period. Their threat is, if you don't give us what we want, we'll destroy your life. And in the most dramatic cases, they literally threaten physical violence up to and including deadly force. But just short of that, the more measured ones, the more disciplined ones, are doing the boycott thing or the character assassination thing, the cancel culture thing. Now, what's interesting, if you go back to my episode where I talked about Dominion by Tom Holland, which I still maintain is the best book probably by far that I've read on the history of Western civilization, the history of Christendom so far. But if you go back and listen to my episode about Dominion, or if you go read, better yet, go read Dominion. Yeah, you you know, listen to my review of it if you don't have time to read it just yet and you're trying to gauge whether to read it. But go read the book for yourself. What's interesting that he points out about a lot of these supposedly anti-Christian, anti-religious, secularist, leftist agendas and initiatives in our day, what's interesting about them is that they have a peculiarly Christian quality to them in many cases. And so even the cancel culture piece, some people will say, well, Christians do the cancel culture thing. And I would say, I sure hope we don't do it like the left does it. I sure hope not, because the way the left does it is ungodly and unbiblical, and it's wicked and it's evil. It's repaying evil for evil. But there's something like that with church discipline, which is appropriate. You know, if God says, that's it, I'm calling it, this person's number is up, and God puts Korah and those co-conspirators who were with him to death in number 16, well, then that's what it is. God knows, right? God knows better than you or I do what was in their hearts. We can say, well, I don't know what's in somebody's heart. God does actually know what's in their heart. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, we can say in the book of Acts, well, that seems really harsh. I don't know what's in their heart. There might be all kinds of reasons. No, no. When we're talking about God's judgment, it's not a whole bunch of hypotheticals that we can't possibly know which one is correct. God knows what's in their heart. And God's judgment is holy and just and true and good. But humanly speaking, we don't know always. 
And so what do we find, humanly speaking, as the pattern in the book of Corinthians, the first Corinthians, more to the point, the first epistle to the Corinthians in the New Testament? We find that there's a man who's living in open sin in the congregation, and the prescription from Paul is, if he is unrepentant, put him out of fellowship, hand him over to Satan. And what happens on the other end of that? He repents, and he's restored And that repentance and that restoration is not some oppressive thing unless at root here, the objection is that God is not good. See, in number 16, the complaint is against Moses and Aaron, but God identifies this as being really ultimately a complaint against God's goodness. God's credibility, God's authority is what's being challenged here. And so also in the New Testament, God's authority is being challenged, but God also empowers earthly authorities. And you can know who to obey based on whether obeying a lower-level authority would violate the commands of the highest authority, God's authority. But Matt Walsh uncovers this business here, and you think, man, there's all these checks and balances whereby health insurance is supposed to vet whether this is legit, that they should cover it. And meanwhile, you have trans healthcare providers, so-called, standing to make money. And so if anybody even just remotely suggests that they would like to have their sexual organs removed, they're going to help make it happen, even if they have to do a rush deal and just say whatever the health insurance companies are wanting to hear right now. And then if there's a question, if it's dubious, those health insurance companies are going to be terrified of being spotlighted as having turned down or denied coverage given the current climate, unless something dramatic changes, unless the current environment dramatically shifts, which it would seem that it is. You know, I mentioned in our Last episode or the one before that, a recent episode. It's been a few days, I'll admit, because I've been busy with work. And oh, by the way, if some generous donor out there wants to bankroll my being able to do this full time at some point, by all means, <laughs> you can write to me at the com or at Mullet at protonmail.com. I've been very busy with work because this is not my day job. I do this nearly pro bono, the exception being the Spotify for Podcasters advertisement that runs at the beginning of the podcast episode. But nevertheless, it was a recent episode where I talked about how I would respond to somebody who says, well, it seems like nothing has really changed at Twitter if the Daily Wire could get censored or have somebody obstructing their efforts to live stream what is a woman? And I said, well, you know what? There are things that are not better yet. I'm still off of Twitter, for instance. That's not better. That hasn't changed. The reason was very frivolous, and it boils down to some Democrat being upset that I said what he had commented or what he had tweeted out was a retarded thing to say. And it was, it was a retarded thing to say. He said, Marsha Blackburn, Republican senator from Tennessee should be removed from office for asking Katanji Brown Jackson, Supreme Court nominee, what is a woman? Can you tell us what a woman is? 
Chris Jolly Hale, failed Democrat candidate, tweeted out, with all due respect, Marsha Blackburn should be removed and replaced. Over that, over that question. And I replied, with all due respect, at Chris Jolly Hale, what a retarded thing to say. And for that, I am going on a year and two months and counting of being locked out of my Twitter account. I kid you not. But still, nevertheless, I look at this reporting from Joseph McKinnon, June 2nd. Elon Musk bypasses his company's censorship efforts and tweets Matt Walsh's What is a Woman movie himself. Fixed is what he commented to Chloe Cole. Fixed. Elon Musk's tweet of the Daily Wire's share included the comment. Every parent should watch this. You know what? That is actual progress. Now, it's not all there is to it. It's not enough just to know what is a man, what is a woman. That's not enough. But it's a start when God says that it's an abomination for women to dress up as men and men to dress up as women and for us to be threatened with the destruction of our lives if we refuse to affirm because we're Christians. We refuse to affirm the lie, the abomination, as it's called in God's word, for us to be threatened with the destruction of our lives. That is also an abomination. For somebody to oppose that with a lot to lose as major woke controlled woke mind virus infected corporations are trying to bankrupt anybody who stands against them corporately for Elon for for Elon Musk to oppose this is that is true bravery it takes a lot of courage and for somebody who's going to be cynical and they're going to say well you know maybe he's got some angle on it I don't want to hear it I don't this is courageous this is brave. More of us need to be brave like this instead of reaching for dismissives, in my view. For something of a chaotic audio clip, I'm going to play for you one minute, 45 seconds of a video shared to Twitter embedded at The Daily Wire. Thank you to The Daily Wire for embedding these tweets in this write-up from Merid Elordi. From June 7th, pro-LGBT activists counter-protested a Muslim-led coalition rallying outside the Montgomery County, Maryland school board against the removal of an opt-out option from human sexuality-related material. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. Let's see 
too much is it not enough did you learn anything here is where i will put in a plug for my book and this is why we homeschool get it from most online booksellers just google it right just google it and this is why we homeschool by garrett ashley mullet yours truly buy a copy today you can get it in paperback you can get it on e-reader get a copy today read it if you have some kids you're thinking about pulling out of the public schools over the summer, homeschooling. If you know somebody who's thinking about it, buy them a copy. Wouldn't it be great if there were an additional option you might be asking? Besides having to show up and protest, chanting this or that, chanting religious freedom now or chanting louder than the LGBT activists, wouldn't be great if there were an additional option? Well, guess what? You're in luck. There is a better option, and this is why we homeschool. Just imagine the surreal place that we're in right now as a country where it's being debated whether parents have the right to say, I don't want my kids reading this book. I think this is trash. I think this is promoting sexual immorality and gender confusion. I think this is trying to talk my kids into being homosexual, bisexual, transgendered. No, I don't want my kids reading this. No. Imagine the place that we're in right now being predicted 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 200 years ago. Our ancestors, our predecessors would be appalled that this is even a debate. But the left got hold of the public schools. They instituted compulsory government schooling. Very, very wealthy tycoons who believed in social Darwinism and who were fans of the Prussian model of compulsory government schooling, got a hold of the education system in this country. They poured a lot of money into it to churn out slaves and the progressives hijacked it to promote leftism. And now feminism has given way to homosexuality being promoted in the schools homosexuality and bisexuality got old and now transgenderism and getting kids into puberty blockers and gender reassignment surgery. That now is being promoted in the public schools. You don't have to subject your kids to that. In fact, I would implore you, do not subject your children to that. When you stand before a holy and righteous God one day, Provided you believe you will, what will you answer him as to why you sent your kids off to be indoctrinated in abominable attitudes, abominable 
lifestyles, abominable, wicked, depraved ways of relating to their own bodies and one another. What answer will you give to God Almighty? If you say, well, I'm a Christian, and you have no care whatsoever for how your own children are going to be trained and indoctrinated with regards to their gender and their sexuality, I would just suggest to you that you think long and hard, you study the word, seek this out, search it out, don't take my word for it. You read what God has said and ask, are you really in Christ? If it doesn't move the needle for you, if your pragmatic reasons for sending your kids in anyways outweigh all of the commands and prohibitions and warnings of God as to these kinds of vile practices, these deeds of darkness, these predatory behaviors. And in the meantime, consider some commentary from Ben Shapiro over at the Daily Wire. Clash between Armenian parents and leftists, start of major backlash against woke agenda. Now, this is actually some really interesting commentary. I would encourage you to check this out. Hear what it is that he has to say on this and really, really think about it alongside your soul searching, alongside your going before the Lord, alongside your searching the scriptures. Shapiro, co-founder of The Daily Wire and a best-selling author, said on his podcast Wednesday that the clash of values would likely be the first of many between the left and ethnic minority groups who tend to adhere to more culturally conservative values. Quote, this is going to be part of the future of the country, Shapiro said. Quote, essentially what you have is a cadre of upper-class white liberals who have a particular set of morals that do not match the morals of particular ethnic minorities in the United States, and the backlash is going to be very, very strong, end quote. Quote, the weird brand of anti-heteronormativity that's now being promoted in the West is being promoted by a very elite group of people, and the vast majority of people, the vast majority of people are not into it. They're not into that becoming the norm, end quote. Now, this actually dovetails with something else I've said recently, and not as recently, but in the past six months to a year. I commented about going out for Menudo, which I tried to like. I, I just don't, I don't care for it. It's very unusual to me. It is not, according to my cultivated tastes to this point in my life, <laughs> uh, Menudo is a delicacy among uh, Mexicans and Hispanics. And it's not, it's not to my liking. I'll try it again. I would try it again. Maybe prepared differently. Maybe that would help. I, I don't know. But when I went out for Menudo with my friends J.P. Chavez and Roy Garcia, I asked them about why it is that Hispanics vote Democrat. I said, why is it when Hispanics are so invested in the family and in traditional masculinity, traditional femininity. The man is the head of the household. The woman takes care of the children and keeps the household. Why, when that is the value of Hispanics, would Hispanics vote for Democrats who are for abolishing gender, abolishing distinctions between men and women, mutilating children, aborting babies. Why? And their answer was very simple and it was very profound. 
It was very profound. Their answer was, Democrats for decades promised Hispanics coming up from Central America and South America some kind of a political cover, legal cover, if they were coming to America with their families, coming to the United States more specifically, because they're coming from Central America and South America. So let's be real. It's all America in a certain sense, but they were bringing their families to the United States because there was more economic opportunity, more political stability, more cultural stability here in the U.S. And as providers, first and foremost, Hispanic men who blazed those trails into the U.S. wanted to vote for whoever was going to help them to provide for their families better and protect their families better. And I would dare say, I would bet you that the same holds true for a number of other ethnic minority communities in the U.S. They came here, and if they've been voting disproportionately for Democrats for a long time, it was on the basis of believing that the Democrats were going to allow them to provide and protect better for their families. And if it turns out that now there's no difference between Republicans and Democrats, Democrats want to abolish gender and sexuality and the family. They want to abort all the babies. They want to remove all the sex organs from the boys and the girls so that they can't ever have kids. They want to inject the children with puberty blockers and gender theory and critical race theory. When it turns out that the Republicans in some cases are like, well, I don't know, maybe, you know, we'll, we'll just see, right? Like, we'll see what the next poll shows. Maybe we can have some of that too. I don't know. What's at risk is missing the window of opportunity to appeal to those minority communities. I read through some of the comments about these uh, Armenian parents in Los Angeles clashing with Antifa over just these issues. The Armenian parents wearing shirts that say, leave our kids alone. Our kids highlighted in black. Our kids, leave our kids alone. Whose kids are these? Our kids, not your kids, not the state's kids, not Joe Biden's kids. Heaven help us. Look at his kids. You don't want our kids turning out like his kids. Leave our kids alone. And I saw some of the comments and some of the comments were, you know what? Those Armenians, they do not play. They do not mess around. Don't mess with the Armenians. <laughs> they are not having it. And here's the thing. Republicans, for one thing, conservatives, generally, broadly speaking, have a real opportunity to appeal to Hispanics and other ethnic minorities that brought their families from their homelands to this country for opportunity. And the Democrats are destroying that opportunity. You want to fix the immigration problem? The porous southern border problem? You want to fix that? Appeal to migrants, conservatives, Republicans, and I guarantee you the Democrats will all of a sudden get very serious about shutting down illegal immigration into this country. I am absolutely, just speaking personally as a conservative, I'm absolutely a supporter of and in favor of immigration, but I think it should be orderly. I think we should be selective. If this is a great country and we want to keep it a great country, we review what you're bringing to the table. 
not just from an education standpoint or from a wealth standpoint, an expertise standpoint, but from a character standpoint, are you bringing good things into this country? Are you going to make this a better country? Not just for you and your family, but for us. Absolutely for you and your family. And I want it to be a better country for you and your family. But we need to field candidates who are Republicans, who are conservatives, who know what they're about and who are standing on the whole leave our kids alone business, who are promoting school choice. That would be the quickest way to break the monopoly that the left has on education in this country. Promote school choice. Promote parents' tax dollars going wherever the kids go. If the kids are going to go to a technical training program, a trade school, the money should follow them. If the kids are going to go to a Catholic school or a Christian school, the money should follow them. If the kids are going to go, yes, you know what, even to a Muslim-centered school or a Jewish school, the money should follow those kids to where they're going to go. And you know what? If you're uncomfortable with the money possibly being used to pay for religious indoctrination because separation of church and state, whatever, I can disagree with you. We can have that debate. But you know what? How about let's make a deal? Let's make a compromise. Have the money only go towards facilities and salaries for the kinds of things that the public schools are promising. And if parents want to buy Bibles for their kids, they're going to have to buy that with their own money. That's fine. If the parents want to buy uh, a Torah for their kids, that's fine. If the parents want to buy a Quran for their kids, it bothers me. I still want to talk with you about Jesus. But that would be better for all of us if the status quo were not the radical left educating all of our kids. That is very clearly the most dangerous thing confronting us in the United States of America in the year 2023. And I'm confident enough in the truth being on the side of what I'm teaching my kids as a conservative, as a Christian. I'm confident enough in the truth of what I'm saying to my kids, what I'm teaching, what my wife is teaching our kids. I'm confident enough that I'm not scared of other parents teaching their kids differently, generally speaking. In fact, I would rather that if that is better than what the public schools are teaching these kids. It might not be everything, but it would be a far cry better. And I think Ben Shapiro is right here. There's a real opportunity to appeal to Armenians and Hispanic communities. And oh, by the way, can I just mention to all the conservative Christians out there, all of the Christians, first and foremost, if it's Muslims leading these protests against indoctrination of children in gender theory and critical race theory in the public schools, in leftism and communism, in sexual immorality in the public schools, if it's Muslims leading it, shame on us. If we're not the ones saying, absolutely not, this is not okay. First and last and most effectively. Fast is fine, but accuracy is final. But you have to actually be taking a shot in order to have accuracy. That's the other side of it too. Consider with me a story from Daniel Plainview, not his real name, Daniel Plainview at Not the Bee. Oklahoma just approved the first religious charter school in the country. 
There was an NPR piece that was sent to me by my friend, Isaiah Arakaios, fellow church member at Summit View, uh, an NPR piece about this same issue, the same question, the same ongoing story. And I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode, as with the others. But let me just say for right now, let me just say the expected challenge is that this violates religious liberty if public tax dollars are going to a Catholic school, a Catholic charter school that violates the separation of church and state. And therefore, as the NPR piece said, we have to oppose this because it could lead to discrimination. Now, let me just ask the question, first of all, what are the public schools doing? Are they not discriminating against Protestant Christians and Roman Catholics? Are they not discriminating against those who are devout and religious and believe that gender theory is an abomination to the Lord our God or to whoever you worship as God? If you worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you hold that gender theory is an abomination, the public education system discriminates against you and says, you've got to keep silent in our space. But what they're promoting is an alternative religion. It's not freedom from religion. It's a compulsory state religion, actually. It's the compulsory religion of the left. And so this charter school being Roman Catholic, I wouldn't send my kids to it because we're not Catholic. Our expecting a ninth child in November might throw some people off, but we're not Catholic, not Roman Catholic anyways. We are Catholic in a proper sense, but that's a story for another day. Nevertheless, the line of reasoning being presented as the principal opposition to tax dollars going to a Catholic charter school, the line of reasoning if it continues on, if it's allowed to prevail, would also bar my family from being able to get our own tax dollars back. Because here's the thing, right? There's a couple of ways you could look at this. On the one hand, you could say, it's the burden of proof on parents to justify to the government why they deserve this money from the government to educate their children as they believe is appropriate. But there's another way to look at it, which is to say, The burden of proof actually rests with the bureaucrats and with the U.S. government and with state governments and with county governments and with city governments to justify to parents why we should be giving our tax dollars to have other people's children's education paid for, all the while we're pursuing an alternative route. We're not even availing ourselves. We have no interest in availing ourselves of the public education system. Why then are our tax dollars going to educate somebody else's kids in the public schools? Shouldn't the government have to justify to us why our taxes are being extracted from our money? It's first and foremost, our generated wealth. Why is our generated wealth being extracted to support a public education system which is systematically opposed to our religious convictions, our faith in Christ, shouldn't it be on the government to justify to us why it's taking our monies that we really would use better? Homeschooling our kids or sending our kids to a private school, sending our kids to a trade school, sending our kids to a parochial school. 
The burden of proof should rest with the teachers' unions and the public school administrators and the legislature that supports public education and the judicial appointees who support the public education system and the governors and the president, if all of the above support the public education system. The burden of proof should rest with them as to why our tax money, our generated wealth is being extracted from us to fund a system that we are not using and we do not want to use. Why we are being fleeced to have our own values, our own worldview, our own religious convictions defeated in the long run. That's the way to reframe this, in my view. Meanwhile, if you want to hear something rich, something truly delicious, which I have been warning you about, actually, I have been cautioning you, I have been telling you, ever since I started podcasting, I've been telling you this was a danger to some people's sensibilities, being overly sensitive, even allergic. Leif Lemehu over at the Daily Wire published a piece June 3rd, 2023, Bible pulled from Utah school district libraries because of vulgarity or violence. I'm not making this up. I am not making this up. I saw this reported on several places. This is the Daily Wire. They haven't led me astray thus far. This is real. This is legit. And I quote, the Bible has been pulled from the shelves of libraries in a school district in Utah after a parent claimed that it could be considered, quote unquote, pornographic. Elementary and middle school students in Utah's Davis School District, located north of Salt Lake City, will no longer be able to find the Bible at school libraries after a district review committee decided to make it only available at high school, high school libraries. School district spokeswoman, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, spokesman, spokesman, Christopher Williams told NBC News that the committee chose to, quote, retain the book in school library circulation only at the high school level based on age appropriateness due to vulgarity or violence, end quote. Mm. Mm. The decision came after a parent upset by a recent state law designed to keep pornographic or indecent materials out of school filed a complaint against the Bible. Quote, I think the Utah legislature and Utah Parents United for making this bad faith process so much easier and way more efficient, the complaint said, quote, now we can all ban books and you don't even need to read them or be accurate about it. Heck, you don't even need to see the book, end quote. Quote, incest, onanism, bestiality, prostitution, genital mutilation, fellatio, dildos, rape, and even infanticide, the complaint continued. Quote, you'll no doubt find that the Bible under Utah code has no serious values for minors because it's pornographic by our new definition, end quote. Now, <laughs> this is somebody trying to be cute, trying to be funny, but really just being vindictive and a rebel and petty and they're wrong. They're wrong. And this is where Again, if I can just get up on a soapbox briefly, this is where we have to be careful that we don't define as pornographic every description of nudity, every portrayal, I should say more broadly, because it's not just print. Let's be honest. It's also visual media. But 
every portrayal of nudity or sexuality or violence needs to be weighed and measured along the criteria of, is this promoting, is this normalizing, is this praising, is this incentivizing sin and wickedness and evil? That should be the test. That should be the test. At the Sistine Chapel, true or false? The Sistine Chapel is pornographic. You would say, I hope, of course it's not pornographic. Well, but then what do you do, right? What do you do with the naked figures on the roof of this chapel? Because they were trying to evoke a Greco-Roman style of art. What do you do with statuary from antiquity, from the Greeks and the Romans directly? What do you do if it ends up in a museum near you and the school wants to go on a field trip to it? Do you know what I say? I say the tax dollars should follow the children wherever they're getting an education. Better yet, let's just not tax for these things. Let's not tax for education. If some wealthy patron, some wealthy donor who now is taxed so much less is able to voluntarily give their money where they think children of this generation are going to get the best education, then parents can decide where they want to send their kids to get an education. If their kids are going to a school that is going to visit a library where there are going to be nude statues and nude paintings and the parents don't like that, here's what the parent can do. If the government doesn't have a monopoly on education, the parents can just say, you know what? I don't like that. And they can make a complaint. And if the school and the teachers won't listen, then the parents can do something very, very simple. They can pull their kids out and send their kids to a school where there's where they're going to be listened to, where they're going to be heard, where they're going to be heeded, or they can homeschool them and they can make the decision. They can say, you know what? I'm totally okay with my kids going and seeing that painting, even though there are naked human bodies being portrayed. I'm okay with my kids reading this poem because even though it describes human sexuality, I don't believe it's promoting or normalizing something evil. The question is, is this prescriptive or is it descriptive? If something is descriptive, but then there are consequences that teach you not to do the thing, that's very different. That's very, very different than, hey, let's try and create positive association with sin and vice and lawlessness, and let's create negative association with obedience to God and what is proper, what is appropriate. That's the test ladies and gentlemen. And we might come to different conclusions on which articles, which books, which movies, which pieces of music, which paintings, which statues go into the promoting or just describing categories. What the point is. We might disagree about that. But you know what? The irony is the folks who say they're all about democracy actually are being the most undemocratic to say, Parents should have no choice in this. They should just do whatever the bureaucrat, the expert so-called at the top, has decreed. They're being as undemocratic as possible. You couldn't possibly get less democratic than saying we're going to pull Bibles from the public school libraries because somebody was just being petty. And the folks who are in positions of authority either don't know any better or don't care or they're too concerned about themselves 
to say, no, that's ridiculous. That's silly. Whether the Bibles get put back in the middle schools is immaterial. If I'm a parent in this school district, I'm saying, I don't trust my kids to be educated by you. You people, I don't trust you. If you don't have any more judgment than that, I don't want you teaching my kids, period. But again, what would we say with number 16? Is number 16, as it portrays rebellion, describing rebellion, or is it prescribing rebellion? In other words, is rebellion being promoted as something that we should all engage in? We should all seek to emulate? Or is rebellion being presented as, do not do what these men did, or you will suffer the consequences? Do not oppose God, or you will suffer the consequences. Of course, the answer is obvious. But see, that really gets to the heart of the matter. What's disputed here, what's disagreed with, what's objected to here is God being the authority or, in a human sense, parents being the authority because you have these little bureaucrats who are drunk on power who want to play God. For our next story, here's a quote. The University of Pittsburgh demanded that conservative students pay $18,734 in security and damage fees after a mob of 250 leftist protesters rioted at their scheduled event, according to a demand letter submitted to the school by Alliance Defending Freedom. On April 18, student groups, Intercollegiate Studies Institute, and University of Pittsburgh's College Republicans chapter hosted a moderated debate between the Daily Wire's Michael Knowles and based politics co-founder Brad Palumbo. The debate was titled, Should Transgenderism Be Regulated by Law? The event included an audience question and answer session and a meet and greet. The College Republicans planned the event months in advance, following all university policies and procedures according to the ADF. The university initially informed ISI that the event would cost $2,000 in security fees. ADF's demand letter explained, however, as the date neared, the costs increased substantially, the legal firm stated. On May 19, ISI was told the security fees amounted to over $18,000. On June 1st, the university demanded that the group, quote, process this transfer very soon. ADF insisted that school officials encouraged students to protest the debate. On March 10th, the university issued a press release referring to the event as, quote, toxic and hurtful for many people in our university community, end quote. Approximately a week later, Provost Ann Kud called one of Knowles' recent speeches, quote, repugnant and, quote, hate-filled rhetoric, end quote. Now, my point here is not to say every college, every university is like this, but it is to say Once again, the antidote to this is not more of the same, and it's not just wait and see, maybe conservatives retake these institutions at a certain point. And it's not to say we repudiate the value of education, but it is to say if you want to break the left's monopoly on education at all levels, whether that's K through 12 or that's higher education, if you want to break their monopoly, if you want to break their stranglehold on indoctrination centers for American men, women, and children. You have to stop funding and subsidizing those same centers. You have to stop funding universities and colleges 
that are working to destroy your ability to influence the public discourse. You have to stop funding and stop supplying the institutions that are indoctrinating little children and corrupting little children and molesting little children and neglecting little children and misleading little children. And then when they grow older, when they become adults, strapping them with tens of thousands of dollars in debt and a head full of nonsense. Stop funding these institutions and let the money go where the education is better, where parents feel their kids are going to get a better education, where the students themselves, when they're old enough to decide for themselves, when the students themselves believe that they're going to get a better education. And I'll tell you what, those students themselves will feel that they are going to get a better education at places that are consistent with the values that they were brought up with, K through 12. If they get their values from the public schools, K through 12, where do you think they're going to want to go to college and university? Someplace that's diametrically opposed to what they were trained up in? K through 12, train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is older, he will not depart from it. If you want to put a nonsense block up in the schools, promote school choice K through 12 for starters. And then, you know what? Here's another novel idea. Let's stop the federal government from underwriting and protecting student loans for colleges and universities moving forward. If the schools and the universities are giving worthless degrees to their graduates and their graduates can't pay them back, let those institutions suffer the consequences. There's an idea for you. Again, again, I am not opposed to education. In fact, I place a high value on a genuinely good and quality education. Few things in life are more valuable than a good education. But what is a good education, ladies and gentlemen? What is the point of education? Isn't the point of education to help your children to have a good life? What is the vision of the good life being promoted K through 12 in American public schools and in American public colleges and universities? What is their vision of the good life? And is that actually good? What is the sense of purpose and belonging that they are instilling in little children? And how is that relating to all of our freedoms, all of our ability to be an independent nation, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all? Is the sense of purpose and belonging working to support us being one nation under God, where it is believed that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights or unalienable rights? life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness? Or is the sense of purpose and belonging being instilled in children thanks to teachers' unions, thanks to the progressive model of public schooling, thanks to compulsory government schooling? Is the sense of purpose and belonging all stacked up on the side of our children opposing the Bible, Western civilization, free market ideals, the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, we know the answer to these questions. And this is why we homeschool. And this is why we need to 
apply the Old Testament to our circumstances, not because everything is still in effect as it was when these things were written, but rebellion being as the sin of witchcraft or divination is to say this is a false worship. This is of a piece with the worship of false gods or devoting yourself to demons, to be a rebel against authority that God has instituted. More to the point, God's authority. To rebel against God's authority is of a piece with putting yourself in league with the demons. And we see that. We see that bearing out. We see that coming to fruition all around us. It's going to take a miracle to turn the tide. But you know what? If we call on the name of the Lord Most High, he works miracles. And we should hope and pray for a miracle in this regard, as with so many. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Do hit subscribe if you haven't to this point. Check out the GarrettAshleyMulletShow.com. It's been a while since I've turned a podcast episode into a post. Again, I've been busy. I hope I have not been letting everybody down with the delay on the new content. Go back and listen to older episodes that you haven't heard yet. If you're looking for more commentary from yours truly, but again, hit subscribe. You'll get new content. When my schedule frees up, I'll be happy to bring it to you. Also consider not just subscribing in a general sense to where you get alerts when the free episodes are available. Uh, Also consider subscribing on Spotify 99 cents a month is all I'm asking. That'll make a big difference in my being able to do this uh, profitably. At a certain point, I would love if all y'all would tell your friends and family to listen to this podcast and also subscribe. And if I can build up enough of a listener base here, maybe just maybe at a certain point somewhere down the road, this is my day job. The podcast is my day job. If that's not the Lord's will, then that's okay, right? That's all right. But I'm just going to mention it, and if God puts it on your heart, or if you feel so led, or if you see a value in this, you know what to do now, right? Head on over to Spotify and hit subscribe. I don't think you'll be sorry that you did. I hope you won't be sorry you did. Someone recently, by the way, I'll just mention this. I I do have to run, but I'll mention this in passing. Someone recently told me, who just started listening to my podcast, that he's like, man, This guy's like the Christian Ben Shapiro. And no disrespect meant towards Ben Shapiro at all. But he's not a Christian. He's not a Christian. If you're a Christian and you're not a Roman Catholic, your options are pretty limited these days. And I think that does not speak well of Protestants in America. We need to up our game. We need to step it up. You need some commentary on these things that's not from people who are going to disagree with you theologically and in terms of worldview generally. I am a Christian. I don't first and foremost identify myself as a Protestant, but I'm not a Roman Catholic. I'm not Eastern Orthodox. That pretty much leaves uh, only the Protestant (laughs) uh, line of descent open. But if that's a value to you, again, hit subscribe, share this with somebody who you think would enjoy it. But again, like I said, like I said, like I said, like I said, I got to run as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.